Welcome back to the podcast on Binding the Bible. This is episode 35, Why Does the Servant Suffer? And in this episode, we're going to jump right into the very heart of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we're going to start with Isaiah's servant songs that we looked at in episode 34 and use those to transition straight into the life, teachings, and ministry of Jesus Christ as presented in the gospels. So this is going to be an awesome episode. I want you to track right with me. This may be one you want to go back and listen to a second time because I'm going to present a lot of information, but it's going to be very, very vital for you to grasp both as a follower of Jesus and as someone who wants to rightly understand the Bible. So here we go. In order to understand the transition that Isaiah makes from Isaiah 42 all the way through Isaiah 53, when explaining the role of the servant of the Lord, in order to understand the transition that takes place between this powerful presentation of a servant who will bring justice to the nations and restore justice to the world, and why that same servant ends up 11 chapters later suffering brutally, and receiving mistreatment, and ultimately facing death, being crushed, we're told, for our iniquities. The answer to that question really stems from a different question, and the question is this, what will it actually take to bring justice to the world? And that's a question that is woven into the heart of the Four Servant Songs in the latter half of the book of Isaiah. What will it actually take to bring justice to a blind and serve and deaf servant, as Israel is portrayed later on in Isaiah 42? Now, the simple fact that in the latter few chapters of Isaiah, um, promise justice, the fact that it comes with such hope for the people indicates to you and to me, as it did to them, that justice is just something that we currently do not see nearly enough of in the world. What we see instead is injustice and brokenness and poverty and captivity. And so it's no surprise that when Jesus appears on the scene, the way Luke records Jesus' appearing in the the synagogue at his hometown is in Luke chapter 4. And these are the words that Jesus speaks when he stands up in the synagogue. He asks for the scroll of the prophet Isaiah and actually reads a passage from Isaiah 61, a passage that comes even later than the particular servant songs that we've been paying attention to. But I would like to just read for you Jesus' own words as quoted from Isaiah 61, but that we are given in Luke chapter 4, verses 18 to 19. Jesus' mission in his own words is this, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Now, if I were to grasp all of the podcast episodes that I've been giving to this point, one resounding theme that we could sum up in this particular episode would simply be this, for you and I to think about Jesus's life and ministry primarily as restoring all that went wrong in the fall. 
Jesus, again, is the perfect representation of all humanity. Jesus is the perfect representation of God's answer to the problem of all humanity by capturing and summing up all that Israel was meant to be and to do. But Jesus ultimately has come to restore us in all of our aspects, in all of our humanity. And so you can look at the passage that he quotes from in Isaiah 61, and you can kind of break this down into three separate categories of the kinds of people that Jesus has come to um, bring restoration to. And the first one is the captives. And you might be able to define captives as those whose freedom has been taken by somebody else. Um, They are captive. Um, That seems simple enough. Then he also lists prisoners. You might look at prisoners as those who are in bondage as a result of their own wrongdoing. So, you know, people go to prison for committing certain crimes, and they may, in fact, be guilty of those crimes of their own of their own choosing, of their own free will. And then he also speaks um, about those who are brokenhearted. And the brokenhearted can actually be so as a result of either captivity or imprisonment. Now, I'm bringing these to your attention because I grew up in a particular context, and maybe it was just me, but I primarily was taught that what Jesus has come to do is deal significantly and only with the kinds of things that I personally am responsible for myself. I would, we would call that sin. And that is an incredibly important part of what Jesus has come to do. The forgiveness of sins is crucial. And you're going to see why in just a second. But it's important to understand that these themes about prisoners and captives often go together. That's just the destructive nature of sin in the world because it isn't just the things that I do that put me in a tricky relationship with God, but there are legitimate things that are done to people. Rape is a horrible thing that is done to women that is not a woman's fault, although many, many women who have been sexually abused or who have experienced something as horrific as rape, would know that that is not their fault, and yet they oftentimes think that it is. And this is the twisted, destructive nature of sin in the world, and that is that things happen to us, and then we react in response, sometimes poorly, sometimes out of guilt, sometimes out of shame, sometimes we don't know how to respond at all. I've often heard it put this way, that sinful people respond sinfully when they are sinned against. And that's so true, and it is hard sometimes to pull the web apart to understand just where it is that the fault actually lies. And that's part of the enemy's tactics. That's part of his game plan. Here's just one example of the way that these two things, captivity and prisoners, go together. Paul is writing to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, and he encourages Timothy to be kind to those that he leads able to teach them, or maybe teachable, patiently enduring evil and correcting his opponents with gentleness. And then we read this in verse 26, um, verses 25 and 26, that God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and that they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Now, right here in verse 26, you have this idea of having been captured by him, captured by the devil, i.e. captives, but then captured by him to do his will, i.e. prisoners. So you see, as a result, people then are brokenhearted. There's a mixed 
twisted web of mess. It's a mess in there. The enemy tempts us, draws us in, captures people by by himself to do the very things that their hearts long to do because they don't understand how it actually works. And so in John chapter 10, Jesus is speaking. He's talking about the religious leaders and their role as shepherds. And he tells his own people that the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. And then in 1 John 3, John tells us again that the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And so we know initially that somehow Jesus is here to deal with not only sins, but the principle of sin at work in the world that is driven by the devil himself. And that's important to understand because you have prisoners, but you also have captives. And then you have those who are very much brokenhearted. Here's what Colossians 2 tells us. You who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in it. You see, according to Colossians 2, both forgiving us of our trespasses, our sins and imprisonment, and disarming the rulers and authorities that outside influence, things done to us, captivity. You see, Jesus actually deals with both of it. And so let's think for just a second about the kinds of things then that Jesus does throughout the gospel of Luke from chapter four on, but actually throughout any of the gospels. Let's just think for a second about the kinds of things that Jesus does. We know from Isaiah 42, he is in some sense going to bring justice to the world. We know from Isaiah 53 that in some sense he's going to suffer as a result of that decision. And according to Luke chapter four, which opens up Jesus's ministry in the gospel of Luke, we know that he has come to bind up the brokenhearted, bring good news to the poor, proclaim liberty to the captives, and open the prison to those who are bound. That's what we know. So let's think about the kinds of things that Jesus does. He forgives sins. He heals the sick. He casts out demons. He makes blind people see. Gives hearing to the deaf. Makes lame men walk. Feeds weary crowds with bread. And on and on and on. Now, for you and me, and for the way I grew up, and maybe the way you did as well, the most commonly spoken about issue that Jesus deals with is unequivocally the forgiveness of sins, and for very, very good reason. And so let me just talk to you for a second about that, because I think it's really, really important. All through the Bible, we're told that the Lord forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Let me read a passage from 1 Kings 8 which is Solomon's prayer of dedication when he has completed the temple. Here's what Solomon says. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, much less this house that I have built. Yet have regard to the prayer of your servant and to his plea, O Lord my God, listening to the cry and to the prayer that your servant prays before you this day that your eyes may be open night and day towards this house, the place of which you have said, My name shall be there, that you may listen to the prayer that your servant offers toward this place and listen to the plea of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray toward this place 
and listen in heaven, your dwelling place. And when you hear, forgive. Which is why it's very easy for David in Psalm 32.1 to announce, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Psalm 103, speaking about the Lord removing our transgressions as far as the east is from the west, so that they may no longer bother us or may no longer be a, you know, a shame to us. And so it, it's important to, to think about this word forgiveness, because in Hebrew, the word forgiveness simply means to carry. And here's the idea. Our sinful choices contribute to the corruption of God's good world. They disturb an otherwise peaceful existence in relationships, in life, in home, in school, at work, you name it. it. In other words, life in the garden once existed in perfect harmony with everything. And we have taken time at length to look at this, and I won't go into more detail about that later. But once man and woman decided to label their own things good and their own things evil, which were quite contrary to the way the Lord had set it up, it causes disruption to shalom. It sets at, at, in a negative downward spiral a corruption to God's worlds. And so, in other words, we then, human beings, anyone, actively participate in disrupting what was once a good and safe world to live in. And those actions, whatever they are, create ripples. They create disruptions. They cause harm, isolation, division, you name it. And something needs to be done about all of that to put creation back to the way it was supposed to be. Again, think Jesus coming to restore all that went wrong in the fall. The Bible calls this something that needs to be done forgiveness. So when we ask for forgiveness, what we are actually asking is for the Lord to carry those offenses for us, to pick them up and remove them from their damaging effects on his world. To ask him to forgive us means that we know that we have negatively contributed to the world looking the way that it does. We have caused damage in relationships. We have failed to cause his good world to flourish in the way he always intended it to. In other words, it means we know that sometimes our very presence in a given situation, if left unchecked, will create disruptions to God's good world. We get angry. We raise our voices. We get defensive. We put others down or give them the silent treatment. We transgress against God's laws. We do not love our neighbor as ourselves. We do not love the Lord our God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so we ask the Lord to carry us, to forgive us, to come down to our level and deal with us in an intimate way such that we recognize the harm we can so easily inflict on the world and ask him to remake us in such a way that we treat God's world and those in it in ways that cause both to flourish. This is what it actually means. And so if you think about all of the things that Jesus does, announcing the forgiveness of sins, doing that sometimes at the same time that he is healing someone else, looking at individuals who are oppressed by demons, some who have leprosy, some who cannot walk, some who cannot see, some who cannot hear, and we begin to think about these things in terms of what Jesus has come to do for the captives, the prisoners, and the brokenhearted, if we broke down into its simplest categories all of the kinds of things we see and read about Jesus doing in the Gospels, we're going to find some something really, really interesting. Jesus has come to set people free in three primary categories. He's come to set people free deep within their spirits, 
by offering them the forgiveness of sins at the heart of who they are as people made in God's image. He's come to deal with them in their soul through his deliverance ministry by casting out demons. And he is constantly touching and healing people in their bodies by giving them sight to the blind, hearing to the deaf, and strength in legs to those who can't walk. Jesus is constantly dealing with all three. In fact, there's even that story in Matthew 9, if you remember it, where he connects the healing of the body with forgiveness of sins. You know, the, the, the four men who come to Jesus carrying their paralyzed friend on a mat to bring him to Jesus. And it says, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the man, son, your sins are forgiven. And then a bunch of the Pharisees there began to bicker with one another that who is he who can say your sins are forgiven? And so Jesus realizing this says, which is easier to say your sins are forgiven or to say, pick up your mat and go home. And what he's actually doing in this passage is he connects the healing of the body with forgiveness of sins. He's only being asked to heal a man's body, but he offers healing for his spirit instead. And so Jesus turns and says a word about authority and then deals with both the spirit and the body. And here's what he says, which is easier to say your sins are forgiven or to say rise and walk, but that you may know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and went home. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. And so forgiving our sins ultimately deals with our spirits. Curing a man's paralysis deals with his body. And here in Matthew 9, Jesus is connecting them. They are, in fact, connected. And I won't spend a lot of time here, but I will tell you something very, very crucial. That there is a deep connection between one's inner identity and the way one carries that in his or her body. And Jesus, I think, is making that connection explicit for us, but that connection is actually even deeper because you and I also have souls. Our soul is where our heart, mind, emotions, and will reside. Now, I'm not going to go into a lot of detail here about those who think we aren't really three parts. Um, I tend to think that that makes the most sense of what I read in the New Testament, and I'll explain why. For most people, it is an absolute jumbled mess in their heart, mind, emotions, and will. I picked up a book a couple of years ago, which was called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. And having been someone who grew up in the church and who thought he knew a thing or two about God or about the word, realized how little I knew about my emotional state and the way I handle things in the world. This is an area that I had never even once tapped into to recognize why do I feel anxious at certain times? Why is fear always controlling my life? Why do I have a heart, such a hard time grasping my identity in Christ? Instead, I think that I am only worth what it is that I'm able to do in the world. And for many people, it's a jumbled mess in there for you, just like it was for me. Because even after a person's spirit has been forgiven, our souls have still have so much garbage in them, we often don't know how to live out of our new position in Christ. Many people still carry around hurts, injustices, sinful responses to life's events, emotional instability, wrongful thinking, disordered affections, guilt, shame, and so on. And the enemy, the very one who captures people to do his will, the enemy attaches himself to many of these emotional wounds and sinful responses deep in our souls. 
And as a result, demonic influence actually can wreak havoc in people's lives. Attaching themselves to the wounds and people's poor responses, gaining footholds through unresolved anger, inability to let go of disappointment, encouraging us to hold on to bitterness or envy, and constantly influencing us to act and react in ways we end up feeling guilty about later. What we need is deliverance. What we need is for Jesus to deal with our souls, to care for our souls, to bind up the brokenhearted, and to set at liberty those who are oppressed. Fascinatingly enough, that sounds strikingly similar to Luke chapter 4, exactly how Jesus defines his mission. Our spirits then are connected to our bodies. Forgiveness of sins being spoken about in the same context as rise, pick up your bed, and go home. Matthew chapter 9. But then our bodies are also connected with our souls. 3 John 2 says, Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. And so if our spirits are connected to our bodies and our bodies are connected to our souls, then the real question we need to ask is, how is Jesus able to save us in all three areas? And right here is the mysterious wonder of the Incarnation. The very fact that Jesus has come in the flesh as a man. Let me read for you Matthew chapter 8, verses 14 to 17. When Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand and the fever left her and she rose and began to serve him. That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. Now right here, Jesus is casting out demons and he is curing the sick immediately after healing Peter's mother-in-law of a fever. And Matthew quotes for us a prophetic fulfillment of Isaiah 53, 4 in the context of the servant song passages that we were looking at in episode 34. And he tells us that Jesus took them. He bore them onto himself. He took these things from us and carried them himself. Carried. Forgiven taken on to himself so that we no longer have to bear the consequences of the kinds of things we've contributed to that have affected the world or the kinds of things that have harmed us as a result of the other aspects of the fall that are present in our world. Things like injustice, unfair treatment, poverty, brokenness, etc., Every week in our service, I'm an Anglican priest, but every week in our service, I encourage our church with what we call the comfortable words. And the very first word of comfort given from Jesus to us, his people, every week, I remind our people of is this, come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. What Jesus is saying is, let me take your burdens and I'll give you my light yoke in its place. 
So then Peter in 1 Peter chapter 2 can pick up on this exact same theme and simply say, he himself, Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Okay, but what on earth must that have been like for Jesus? What is it like to take illnesses, diseases, oppression, and sins into your body so that you can set others free? Well, thankfully... The gospel writers actually tell us. John 12 and John 13 together give us this information about Jesus. Jesus speaking, Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. You see, if we don't think for a second that Jesus was deeply troubled, in fact, John 13 tells us as much when it says, after saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit. Jesus felt deeply the things that he was taking from others. He was taking on to himself the very things that were listed for that the people were carrying, that the people were burdened under. Jesus came to set the captives free. He came to proclaim release to the prisoners, you know, sight to the blind. He came to restore hearing to those who were deaf. He came and took the infirmities and bore their diseases onto himself, carrying all of those offenses himself. And so when we read in Isaiah chapter 53, when we read passages that say he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and with his wounds we are healed. The verse 4 in Isaiah 53 says, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. There it is. Sorrows could in fact be sins. It could be grief. It could be heartache. It could be pain. It could be trauma. It could be wounds. It could be abuse. It could be mistreatment. It could be rejection. You name it, Jesus takes it. That is a holistic picture of what it is that he's actually come to do. He has come to take onto himself the weights and the things in this world that nobody else can carry, which is why Peter can so comfortingly tell the church to cast all your anxieties onto him because he cares for you. And there are people in this world right now weighed down tremendously by anxieties because they are trying to carry those things themselves and they find that they're being crushed under its weight. Jesus willingly offers to be the one who is crushed under the weight of the nastiness and the ugliness and the brokenness and the injustice and the cruelty and the oppression and the sin that is in our world so that we no longer have to bear it ourselves. And so while Jesus is on the cross, In Luke 23, we will hear him say these words, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now, this statement of Jesus on the cross is incredibly significant, and it's significant for multiple reasons. The first is this, for Jesus to utter to the very ones, I'm sorry, to utter to his father about the very ones who are putting him onto the cross. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Jesus recognizes that there is something else going on besides just people's individual sins, which is placing him there. And there is in a sense in which people are blind 
to the actions that they commit. We see this all the time in societal injustice. We do not just see injustice that happens in the world as a result of individual personal selfish sinful choices. There are principles and forces at work in our world that are stronger than the individuals participating in them. And Jesus knows this, which is why he can call release to the captives, those who have had their freedom stolen by someone else, and also proclaim freedom to the prisoners, those who find themselves in prison or in captivity as a result of their own selfish decisions. He knows that both are at work constantly. But Jesus also knows, according to Isaiah 53, we read that he has carried our sorrows. And so when Jesus prays to the Father to forgive us, he is simultaneously saying, the way you can forgive them is by allowing me to carry those sorrows myself. And in the passage, in Luke chapter 23, we read that he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments and the people stood by watching. But the rulers scoffed at him saying, he saved others, let him save himself. If he's the Christ of God, his chosen one, The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. Now, I don't know if you hear in those echoes of the exact same kinds of things that Satan himself tempted Jesus with in the wilderness. Jesus knows what's going on. There are people right there mocking him, criticizing him, laughing at him, making fun of him, and echoing the exact same words that the enemy once said to Jesus himself. And Jesus knows those people right there are captive to do the enemy's will. They have been captured by him. The passage that Paul references to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, they have been captured by the enemy to do his will. These people now are speaking the very things that the enemy once spoke to Jesus himself. And Jesus knows that they're captives And he knows that he has come to bring justice to the world. And the only way to do that is to take into himself all of the injustice. And this is precisely what he does. And he also knows that the enemy will continue to wreak havoc in the world unless he is silenced, unless he has stopped. And so Jesus knows that the enemy has nothing in him. He says in John 14, 30, that the enemy has no claim on him. Or a different way to translate that means that the enemy has nothing in him. And what's so significant about that statement is that what Jesus is saying is that there is nothing within him. There's nothing within Jesus with which the enemy can gain a foothold like there so easily is within the lives of every person on the planet. The enemy has no ability to get in through Jesus' weakness, through his brokenness. And trust me, on the cross, facing mockery, slander, ridicule, etc., Jesus had every possible opportunity to, to do what? To take his frustration, his anger, his resentment, and his bitterness toward those people and toward that injustice that was happening to him. He had every conceivable opportunity to, quote unquote, take that to the grave. And he would not bite. He released every conceivable injury and injustice that was ever leveled against him all the way to his dying breath so that what he took to the grave was nothing but purity, 
justice, wholeness, righteousness, and blessedness, so that when he rose from the grave three days later, he could give blessedness, purity, wholeness, and restoration to every person who asked for it. Because if Jesus had taken into death resentment, bitterness, or unforgiveness, harboring feelings of of hatred or or envy or um, mistreatment towards the people that put him on the cross, then those very emotions that rule the lives of so many people deep within their souls would never have been put to death and would still be free to win the day in this world. But Jesus took it all, carried our sorrows, bore our sins in his body on the tree, and, and, and was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace And with his wounds, we are healed in body, soul, and spirit. This is why the servant suffers. It's because we have fallen so far from the standard of justice and the the needs for what it will take to restore justice to the world are so great that it will actually cost the death of the only innocent, pure, righteous one to ever live. And true righteousness and true purity is now defined ultimately as those who are willing to sacrifice oneself for the benefit of the community, whereas true wickedness and true evil is oftentimes defined as those who will sacrifice the community to exalt themselves. Jesus rights the wrongs that were committed in the fall. He restores to mankind everything that was lost in the fall. And this is why when you read the Gospels, it is filled with so much of him touching people in the body, healing them deep within their souls, setting them free from the demonic influences that wreck their lives, and then forgiving them of their sins so that they can be at one and at peace with God. That's the Gospel. That's why the servant suffers. That's what he's come to do. That's who he is And ultimately, for those who choose to follow him, we have to understand that. The church, I fear, is doing a poor job of knowing what it means to embody a servant king who suffered in order to become the king. And I fear that our understanding of the kingdom of God does not embrace fully this idea of suffering and forgiveness and release and pursuit of justice, but it needs to because our king came to set the world free by carrying their sorrows and freeing them of the burdens that weigh them down emotionally, mentally, spiritually, physically, you name it. He still wants to do that work today in and through us and in and through us to bless the world. So glad that you are listening in on this podcast. Definitely gets me excited when I start talking about these things. I'm wanting to preach to you all, but I will end it now as we're out of time. But thank you so much for listening in. Um, Would love to hear feedback from you as I'm continuing to do these each week. Uh, It's really helpful for me to Listen to those of you who have suggestions or questions. Again, leave me a rating or a review on the podcast app that you listen to these on. I would love to to be able to, to hear your comments and your thoughts as well. Until next time, have a great week.